Well, this morning we're going to continue looking into God's Word in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, same verse that we were on last week. I was thinking about this two-part sermon, and I was wondering if I could describe it as a cliffhanger. I don't think we really had a cliffhanger ending last week. I mean, it's not like you walked away going, I wonder what happens next, because we'd already read the whole verse. But it is a continuation. And I want to just uh, review just briefly what we talked about last week. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, it comes in the, the middle of teaching that Moses is giving, where he's, he's giving a summary of all of the commandments and all the teachings that God has given. And we've just been told the most important teaching in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we've learned that there is only one God, and then we, take, we learn our response is to love God. And I was thinking, how would I summarize the whole sermon? Because I don't want to preach the whole sermon again. That would really be tedious for those that heard it last week, and uh, probably for me too. And I'd probably, that'd be interesting to do sometime, actually. Maybe I should try that. Re-preach the exact same sermon and see how close I get to preaching the same thing the second time. And see if anybody goes, haven't we heard this before? Maybe one week might be a little close to do that, but... Uh, you know, I, I was thinking, here's the whole sermon. This is the whole main idea of that verse. One sentence. We are to love God all the time, no matter where we are, because of who he is. That is the main point of that verse. Love the Lord your God. And then we spent a fair bit of time talking about how we are to love God. And that is where we see we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart. We talked about last week the fact that that word heart actually means our choices or decisions that we make. And our soul, which is our emotions and our attitudes. Well, we are going to continue taking a look at this verse. We're actually going to springboard into the New Testament. But before we do that, I need to mention for the pastor's club... This is part two of the sermon, so this is also part two of the drawings that you've been doing. So last week I had you draw a picture of how God loves us. This week we're going to do something that we, I've actually had you draw a picture of this before. How do you love God? How do you show God that you love him? But I want you to be very specific in your drawing this week. It's got to involve some kind of an action, something that you do with your body to show that you love God. Okay, so that's this week for the, the Pastors Club. By the way, I am hoping that I can have all the details together that our Pastors Club get-together is going to happen right after Thanksgiving. So I'll be sending out invitations pretty quick here. We haven't forgotten about that. I've still been trying to wrap my head around how do we have an ice cream party when we can't have ice cream together. Working on it, creative juices are going, I think we're going to make this work. So that'll be right after Thanksgiving. So uh, pester your parents if you don't hear about it, because I'll be sending the invite to them. So, but don't pester them today. Okay, the invite's not going out today, or Monday or Tuesday, like end of the week sometime, okay? So sorry, parents, if I just made your life really miserable, just call me up and tell me to smarten up, and I'll get those invitations out. But Greatest commandment. Where does that title come from? We refer to this verse as being the greatest commandment. You know, it actually does not come from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses doesn't actually say, this is the greatest commandment. We interpret it that way because of the New Testament. This morning, Phil has read for us from Matthew 
the, the account where Jesus is, is told, is asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? And he answers it. Last week, we had, uh, I believe it was Dan that did the scripture reading last week, and he read the text from Mark. We actually have three different accounts in the New Testament where the question is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And so in Matthew and in Mark, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he gives the answer. In Luke, it's actually Jesus who asks the question. Now, I don't know about you, I would find this a little frustrating if you, if you walked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, I got a question for you, and you asked, how do you inter- inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, let me answer that with a question. What's the greatest commandment? That's exactly what happened in Luke chapter, uh, chapter 10. I think it's chapter 10, yeah. Um, uh, one of the religious leaders came, and he actually wanted to test Jesus. And so he asked that question, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus turned around and said to the religious leader, well, you tell me, what's the greatest commandment? And he answered it by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, before we go any further in taking a look at, we're going to continue taking a look at how do we express our love to God. But before we do that, I need to point something out, because this phrase of the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is one that some people actually have a bit of a problem with. They tend to get a little bit hung up on on it, and here's why. I asked Bev to put together a chart for me. Let's see if we can get that up on the screen here. There's the four different places where the greatest commandment is quoted in Scripture. There's four different words that are used, but the check mark indicates which of those words are used in that text. So in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, we're told to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In Matthew 22, it's love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, and your mind. Then in Mark and Luke, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and your mind. Now I point this out because some people love to tear Scripture apart. And they love to find inconsistencies or apparent inconsistencies like this and go, aha, see, this shows that the Bible has errors in it. We can't trust the Word of God. So I want to just pause and explain why we've got different words being used. First of all, we have got three different stories that happen here. Deuteronomy, it's Moses who's talking. Then we've got Jesus who's talking. And then we've got the religious leader who's talking. Three different accounts when the question is asked, and we get some different answers. But that doesn't explain absolutely everything because Matthew and Mark are both written accounts of the same story. They're both the time when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Now, to help us understand how it's possible to have different words used, and yet it still is an accurate representation of what was said, I want us to imagine for a moment that someone has just walked up to you and has just told you that they just witnessed a horrific vehicle accident over on the corner of King Street and Cirrus Avenue, and Mr. and Mrs. McGillicuddy have been badly banged up. 
Now, I hope there's nobody named McGillicuddy in this city. I tried to pick a name that, like, hopefully doesn't apply. If there is, my apologies to the McGillicuddies. This is an imaginary thing, okay? They're just fine if you know the McGillicuddies, okay? But imagine someone has just come up and told you that. Now, a while later, somebody else comes up and tells you, oh, man. You don't believe the accident I just saw. It was there on the corner where, where Cirrus and 13th meet, and, and Mrs. McGillicuddy was killed in the accident. Now, at first glance, that sounds like two different instances, doesn't it? First of all, it was described as a different place. One says the corner of King Street and Cirrus, and the other person says where Cirrus meets 13th. You got two different people talking about the same accident, though. How can that be? Well, for those that know Estevan, and everybody in the building, of course, knows this, and, and those, many that are watching the live stream, but for the sake of those that are watching the live stream that aren't familiar with Estevan, there is an intersection where King Street crosses Cirrus, and 13th happens to meet at the same intersection. So you get two different people describing the exact same place, but one says it's the corner of Cirrus and 13th, and the other one says it's where 13th, or sorry, Cirrus and King Street, and the other one says it's where 13th meets Cirrus. One of the differences between Matthew and Mark is that in Matthew, it says the Pharisees came and asked Jesus a question. In Mark, it says a teacher of the law came and asked Jesus. Why is that? That's kind of like two different people describing the same intersection differently. The Pharisees are the teachers of the law. Was there a group of them? Quite probably there was, because Matthew says that the Pharisees, plural, came. Did they all talk at the same time? More likely only one talked. So Matthew points out that one Pharisee is doing the speaking, and Mark points out that there was a group there. They're both correct. So now what's up with the different words being used? Matthew says that Jesus responded by saying, love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, and with your mind. Mark says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. How often do you think Jesus was asked this question of what's the greatest commandment? You ever thought about that? We know that it came up twice in conversation, for sure, because Luke, it was he that brought it up. But you know, most likely, and most commentators will agree on this, Jesus would have been asked this question many, many times. Anybody here know what the, the role of a Pharisee was back in those days? Just think about it for a minute. I'll let you ponder that. The Pharisees were theologians. They studied the Scriptures. They also were lawyers, because specifically when they studied the Scriptures, they were looking at the laws, and they had determined that there were 613 different laws that a Jew needed to abide by. The Pharisees were also the bylaw officers. They were the ones who were enforcing these laws, were making sure that people understood these laws. Now, can you imagine playing a board game with 613 rules? 
I have troubles playing board games that have more than about 10 rules, okay? I mean, I, I get lost. That's about my maximum capacity when it comes to remembering the rules. I'm regularly playing, and someone will go, you can't do that. Why can't I do that? Because uh, it says so in the rules. Oh, I forgot that rule. Okay. Here's what the Pharisees would do. They would take these 613 laws, and they would begin to categorize them. These are the important laws. These are the ones that are not quite as important. Jesus pointed out that they did this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, we read Jesus saying, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Gotta love that imagery, don't you? You strain out the gnat, but swallow the camel. What he basically was saying was, you are looking at the laws and you're categorizing these, but you're focusing on these lesser important ones, you're forgetting about the really important ones. But then he doesn't say that means that the lesser important ones, you don't have to worry about them. No, you should be abiding by them and the others. You see, that's what the Pharisees would do, is they were continually asking one another and asking others, how do we categorize these? What's important? And so the question of what is the most important law is actually a question that would have been asked many times of Jesus, most likely. The Pharisees would have been grappling with this. They would have asked one another this. They probably had differing opinions about this. And so here's how it's possible for Matthew and Mark to use different words to describe the same conversation. First of all, go back to the accident scene. What did the first person say? Mr. and Mrs. McGillicuddy were pretty badly banged up. What did the second one say? Mrs. McGillicuddy died in the accident. Which is correct. They both are correct, assuming Mr. McGillicuddy was in the car as well. They probably were both pretty badly banged up. And one adds another detail that Mrs. McGillicuddy died in the accident. Well, we don't know exactly what words Jesus used when he answered this, but most likely the disciples had heard this answer being given many, many times by Jesus, and probably sometimes he used three words, sometimes he used four. It's not like it was always a direct quotation from Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. We know that because none of the New Testament accounts are a word-for-word -word quotation. In fact, when Jesus asked the religious leader in Luke, what is the most important commandment? He answered by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. You know how Jesus replied? You have answered correctly. And so, most likely what happened was that they were, both Matthew and Mark were taking mental notes of what was said and one remembered hearing three words, one heard four words. They may not have even known exactly what Jesus said, but they'd heard him say this answer so often that they just wrote down the answer that they wanted. It really doesn't matter what exact words Jesus used. The main idea is the same. We are to love God with our whole being. Now, here's what I want us to focus on today. 
If the main idea of this verse that we talked about last week is that we are to love God no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, because of who He is, the question is, how do we do that? It's not just enough to say, oh, I love God, but not do anything about it. So let's finish up this verse and take a look at how do we love God. Last week we took a look at we love God with our heart, and we talked about how that means our choices, the decisions that we make. We took a look at what it means to love God with our soul, our attitudes, and our emotions. Well, the next word we're going to take a look at is love the Lord your God with all your strength. This is a word that's got an obscure definition to it when you do a word study, i got to tell you. I was, I was reading through some of the commentaries and I came across this quotation. It's actually from Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. Here is the definition of the word strength as it's used in this verse. It's the full extent of the power wherewith we are to love God. Maybe it's because we're in election mode, I don't know, but to me that sounds like an answer that I have no idea what they've just said. It kind of sounds like a political answer, doesn't it? You know, you've got to give an answer, but you don't want to commit to anything. You know, I, I don't know, I, sorry, I'm, I don't mean to slam those that are into politics, but it, that is kind of what tends to happen, you know, that's, that's the kind of the answers that are often given. That's what that definition sounds like to me. It's like, what does that mean? The word literally means our force or our might. Some translations actually have this translated as love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Well, what does that mean? What does strength mean? If Just forget about this biblical definition of it. Just what does the word strength mean? Little kid goes walking up to a great big box, walks up and goes, I pick it up. What does often the adult ask? Are you sure you're strong enough to pick that up? I strong. And then they try to pick up the box. Whether they do it or not doesn't matter. They're proving how strong they are. What happens a few years later in life as the older gentleman walks up to the box and goes, I'm going to pick up this box. And his wife says, are you sure you're strong enough? Oh, yeah, I'm strong enough. Oh, I guess I'm not strong enough. Strength is the physical ability to do something. It's the force that we can apply to move something, be it our bodies, something, picking something up. That is what we think of as the word strength meaning. Well, I want to read for you a quote from a book that's called The Experiential Worshipper by Bob Roguenline. And I need to give credit to this book because much of what I'm, I've been teaching both last week and this week uh, comes from materials in this book, and I very much appreciate this, this little book. As you can tell, I've used it so much, it's completely fallen apart. I had to rebind it. And Here's what he says about loving God with our strength. In the Scriptures, strength sometimes refers to personal determination, other times to moral conviction, but it is often connected to the physical aspect of human existence. Proverbs 20, 29 uses this word to describe the aging process of the body. The glory of youth is their strength, but the beauty of the aged is their gray hair. Sometimes lack of physical strength is described, 
my strength fails because of my misery and my bones waste away. That's Psalm 31 verse 10. Even when physical strength is used as a spiritual metaphor, physical images are used. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 40, verse 31. When Jesus calls us to love God with all we are, he not only includes our will, our emotions, and our intellect, but he puts all of these aspects of our humanity in the context of our physical being. To love God with our strength means to allow our bodies to give expression to the thoughts, feelings, and decisions that reflect the response of the whole person to God. Basically, when Scripture tells us that we are to love the Lord our God with our strength, this is our strength. Whatever we do with our physical bodies, that is what it refers to. And our physical bodies are the way in which we carry out or demonstrate the choices that we make, the emotions that we have, the attitudes that we have. All the things we talked about last week, it, it's great to have you know, all that happen inside of us and say we're expressing love to God, but our bodies are what carry that out. That is loving the Lord your God with all your strength. But in the New Testament, there's one more word that's added. The word is mind. Why in the New Testament does something get added that isn't included in, in Deuteronomy? It actually matches perfectly with what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Because throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we have all kinds of examples of, you have heard this said, but I add this. And oftentimes, it has to do, actually, with our thoughts. A couple of examples. Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, a physical action. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's our thoughts, our imagination. Here's another example. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. That's a physical thing you do with your body that involves somebody else's body. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, which is like the ultimate insult that you could give in Arabic, is answerable to, those, to, to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You see, Jesus adds this concept that it's not just what we do on the outside that counts. Our thoughts have to match up with it as well. And so most likely, Jesus will have, have answered this question numerous times 
And as he's teaching in Matthew chapter 5, he probably began to incorporate some of that teaching. And so it probably was very common for the disciples and the religious leaders to hear Jesus say this phrase, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. (coughs) Excuse me. The religious leader that Jesus asked the question to, he would have known Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 inside and out. And yet when Jesus asked him what's the greatest commandment, he used four words. Most likely he'd heard Jesus say that. And when Jesus said, you have answered correctly, it gives validity to that word. See, we're not dealing with a mistake in Scripture. We're dealing with teaching that Jesus is building upon what has been said in the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with your mind. It's our thoughts and our imagination. So how do we put this all together? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Remember the implications we talked about last week? Okay, in case, in case you don't remember, let me tell you. This is for those that weren't there because I'm sure everybody that heard my sermon last week remembers everything that I said. Probably not. Implications. First of all, the word and. It's not love the Lord your God with all your heart or all your soul or all your mind or all your strength. These all have to be in alignment with one another. The choices that we make, first of all, will have implications about what we think about. Are our attitudes and our emotions in line with those choices? And then finally, is our body carrying out things that reflect those those decisions that we've made? But it's also the word all that is significant. It's not with some of your heart and some of your mind. It's not with some of your choices and some of your emotions and some of the actions you do with your body. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. So right now, some of the kids are drawing pictures for the the pastor's club. And they're drawing pictures of how they can show God that they love him. Have you ever thought about how you express your love to God? How do you express love to God with your choices? How do you express love to God with your attitudes, with your emotions, with your body, with your thoughts, your imagination? This morning, I want to pose a simple question for us to consider, one that we all can consider no matter what age we are, whether we're in person or on the live stream. Which of these areas is God prompting you that you need to grow in? Which of these areas is God tapping his, 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 his finger on my shoulder kind of thing and saying, Craig, you need to work in this area. I think you could express love more to me in this area. Or perhaps you've been inconsistent in expressing love in this area. Maybe you're really good at making sure that the body's in line, you don't do anything wrong, but what you're thinking about doesn't match up. 
You know, I think, I think those verses that, that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 5 are pretty powerful verses, pretty powerful reminders that it's all our mind and all our strength. We talked last week about the example of how sometimes we can come to church and our attitude could be totally sucky, but everything looks great on the outside and we're saying the right things and we're doing the right things, but the attitude isn't right. What is the area that God is prompting you to love him more with? Your heart, your soul, your mind, or your strength? And as we reflect on that, this morning we have an opportunity as we continue to worship together to put this into practice. As we celebrate communion this morning, On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup and after he distributed, he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's the new covenant that I'm giving to you. You know, when we celebrate communion, first of all, we've got a choice to make. Are we going to take part or are we not? It's not a question of doing the right thing. Because we can continue to express love to God whether we take communion or we don't. So it's not like you have to do this in order to express love to God. But Jesus did teach us that we should be loving God in this way and expressing our love to Him. And so we do so as an act of obedience. We provide the opportunity. But each one of us has the choice to make. Will I choose to participate in communion or not? And if you choose not to, that's fine. Continue to engage in worship together as we do celebrate communion. But it also is an opportunity for us to choose what we're going to think about. If the sermon's done and we're into communion, that means that the service is just about done. That means it's almost lunchtime. That means I can start thinking about what am I going to eat? Where are we going? What am I going to do this afternoon? Or am I going to choose to focus on who God is and the fact that He made a sacrifice for me so that I could live in relationship with Him having experienced His love and forgiveness? Am I going to choose to focus my mind on continuing to worship? I have a choice to make as far as what my attitudes and emotions are going to be. Am I truly going to participate in communion as an expression of that emotion of love? And finally, we have the choice to physically take part in communion. Now, as I say, communion is not something that everyone must take part in. It's not something that it's a religious rite that only certain people can take part in. We simply offer it as an opportunity to express worship to God to remember and to reflect on the fact that we are able to live in relationship with God and remember the sacrifice that he made for us. Just a couple logistical things before we go any further for for those that are in service. Did everyone who wanted to receive the elements receive? Is there anybody that did not get it when they came in? Okay. Then also just to let you know, On these cups, there are two lids. You will want to peel the clear lid first. Then there's a little round wafer. And then you peel the purple lid. If you peel the purple lid first, it's really hard to get them out without making a big mess. So for those that are at home, I'd encourage you to get the elements ready that you and your family will be participating with 
For as we worship, we will together eat a wafer or a piece of bread or whatever it is that we have. And as we do so, it is a tangible reminder of Jesus' body that was broken for us. It is a tangible reminder of the gift that our Heavenly Father gave to us of being able to experience His love and forgiveness. It's a tangible reminder of the reality that we can experience His love and forgiveness and be united with Him as His children. And so I would invite us this morning. We are going to pray Then we will participate in eating the the bread or the wafer. Then we'll pause for a word of prayer once again. And then we will drink together. But may this be a time of expressing our love to God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and with our strength.